All right, so we turn to God's Word as well together here, and uh, here we are following along in the letter that the Apostle Paul, the pastor, the church planter, wrote back to the church that he had planted in Philippi. He's writing from prison. He writes this. He says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct yourselves, conduct your lives, govern your lives in a manner that is consistent with the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. The, the gospel is good news about God's grace, that God's kingdom is at hand in Jesus Christ, and that Jesus Christ came to live and to serve and to die on the cross to give his life for us. That is the good news. And as we put our faith in him, we receive his grace and forgiveness and all that he accomplished on the cross. We receive that good news by grace, God's grace alone through faith alone. You did nothing. You did nothing to earn it. You can't do anything to get more of it. God gives it freely to you. So it is a totally free gift, but at the same time, it seems that it costs us everything. Because as we transfer our faith and as we transfer control of our lives from ourselves to God, as we accept the gospel, we are saying, I am not the Lord of my life, that I am a broken person in need of forgiveness, and that you are my Savior, that Jesus is now the Lord of my life. And that now requires me to live with Jesus as Lord, not me as Lord. I'm, I'm no longer in control of my own life. So the Apostle Paul writes this group and says, hey, you need to conduct yourselves in a manner that's in line with the gospel of Jesus. So whether I'm with you or if I only hear about you, I know that you will stand firm in one spirit. Basically, hey, if I'm watching you or not watching you, it doesn't matter because the God of the universe sees you. And, and his grace to you doesn't just change you know, your gatherings as you worship, but it changes all of life. So conduct your life consistent with that. It requires us to fight against what I would call the sacred-secular divide. The sacred-secular divide is a very, uh, it's a very unhelpful notion that God really cares about some things, and there's some things that God really doesn't care about. And sacred things, as we gather as a church and as I pray and read my Bible, that God really cares about that stuff. But then there's kind of the everyday of my life that God is maybe a little bit interested in, but not completely. And that's just not the case, that whatever we do, whatever God calls us to, we are to conduct ourselves in a manner that is in line with what he's done for us. And so it matters to God how we live all of our lives. And his, the fact that he has given us his grace freely doesn't diminish our responsibility. It actually enhances it. It gives us the power. It gives us the motivation to live this kind of a life. So what does that kind of a life look like? He says here in verse 27, that standing firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. It's, it's unity. It's about working as one together. It's about being unified with others. His main concern... For this church was that they would live in such a way where they would be in that they would be one. There were a couple of members of the church who he names later in the letter, prominent members, calls them out by name. They were in a disagreement with one another. They were quarreling. There was some kind of dispute. We don't know the nature of the dispute, but clearly it was happening and he calls them out and he's calling them to be unified with one another because what happens is this. When disunity enters a group, particularly a group of Christians, it can really erode the 
atmosphere and the culture of that place, and it can impact the witness of that Christian community to the world around it. And so this is a really important message for us because we will all face conflict and quarrels in life, but even with one another. Um, the reason that happens is because God made us all different, so we have to deal with each other's differences. We all wrestle with, the, with sin in our lives, and we all and that impacts each other. And we're, we're just, we're all messed up. If you don't think that your sin is um, that bad or you're not all that messed up, just ask your spouse, ask a good friend, and they would be happy to inform you that you too are messed up like the rest of us. So this call is to all of us and we need it. It's a call to Christian unity. And it's a unity that we can only foster through humility. These are tough topics for us today, so I want to stop and pray uh, before we go any further. Father, my heart uh, is heavy as I consider this, and I consider how far short of your standard I fall. But by your grace, I pray that you would empower me and all who consider your word today, that you would empower us by your grace to live a lives that are in line with your heart and your way and what you have done through Jesus, our Lord and Savior. So it is in his name that we pray that you would just do your good work during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing, the first point here is that the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, uh, it necessitates unity. Again, he says, I know that you will stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Uh, then in verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2, he says, he's encouraging the believers to be like-minded, have the same love, be one in spirit and of one mind. It's this beautiful unity that he's encouraging them to, but why is that unity so important? The unity is important for a number of reasons. One is there's opposition out there, verse 28 without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. Um, there, are, there are people who will oppose God's way and will oppose God's people, and we need to be unified so that we can stand against that. And it's, our unity then protects us, but it's also a sign of God's grace to us, and it's a sign of his really, his judgment against evil, which we see there at the end of verse um, 28. And it's interesting, because Christians are not a people who retaliate. And that is, a, that is, I don't know if it's uniquely a Christian idea, but it is certainly a strong Christian idea. And it's, it's, it is not a common idea that we should be a people who do not retaliate. Because it's so ingrained in us when people offend us to just retaliate and get back. In, in simple ways, I mean, I was leaving the um, the church roller skating party, and uh, there was a person in their car who did the craziest little maneuver and was somehow offended at me by their poor driving and gestured at me and my family out their window of their car. And I, I, was, I was furious, and fortunately, somebody who loves me was next to me, said, don't, you know, don't go there, don't retaliate, you don't need to tell this person, and I'm grateful for people like that in my life because our human response is to retaliate but scripture says do not repay anyone evil for evil 
Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Jesus himself taught, you have heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. Um, Jesus said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. There's this the notion that whatever opposition we face, that we are united not to retaliate, but we are united to support one another and leave it all into God's hands. So we need unity because of opposition, because, but we also need unity because of suffering. Look at verse 29. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but, congratulations, to suffer for him. I, I added the congratulations. Since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So basically, Paul's saying, you know the struggle I had. When he got to Philippi, he got in trouble and he got imprisoned. And now he's writing to them from a different issue in a different prison. And he said, you know, we've been called to suffering in Christ. When we got called to Christ, we, didn't, we weren't promised that everything would be easy. We are struggling, yet we are unified so we don't face suffering alone. When we suffer, we have, we, we have a unity of people that to, to walk with us and support one another. And we're not just some fellowship of the miserable either. That God, through suffering, his grace can abound. Look at Jesus. It, grace came through Jesus' death and resurrection. His suffering was redemptive. Our suffering can be redemptive too. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago, earlier in this letter. This is the idea that we can have joy no matter the circumstances because God is using it for his glory. But we need to be unified to make it through that and remind each other that that is indeed true. And then finally here is just being united against internal division. And this is at the beginning of chapter 2 here. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. There's this call to, look, if, if Jesus has done anything for you, and the way he writes this, basically, because you have this encouragement and comfort and the sharing of spirit, you can be like-minded. You can have a one love. You can be united in one spirit, one mind. So how? So our second point here is that so the first point is that the gospel requires unity, or it compels us towards unity. Secondly, unity is fostered through humility. In verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. This is a very countercultural idea. That, our, that we live a way of life that puts the needs of others before our own. Certainly in Paul's day when he wrote this, the Greeks didn't even really have a word to describe humility. It just wasn't part of their vocabulary. Some even feel that in writing this letter, Paul is sort of coining a new, a new idea. But 
at the, when Jesus came, the notion of humility was central to the Christian faith. Um, the, the Romans hated the idea of humility. And, and, and it's hard because it cuts against the selfish grain of our lives. For me, this has been, this has been brutal this week reflecting on this, and this cuts to my core because this is a season where I'm not fully united to all my brothers and sisters in Christ, that I'm not living the life of humility that the gospel requires of me, and something's got to change, and, uh, and it's hard. So we consider, how do we move from people who are generally motivated by self-interest to be people who put the interests of others first and who can live this type of humility? And I came across a great resource, or reminded of, of a great little book called Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a German pastor. He stood against Hitler and against the Nazis, and he, in uh, his movement of other believers standing against Nazism, he was, he was imprisoned and, and ultimately hanged, killed by the Nazis for his stance against them. But he wrote a little book called Life Together. It's just a little treasure I commend it to you. Chapter 5 of that book is called Ministry. And he lays out seven principles, seven ministries, seven practices that we can live to fight against selfish ambition. And he points to the example of the disciples. And the disciples, on more than one occasion, were found quarreling with each other. Who's the greatest? Who's the most important? And he said, in order to fight against that type of an attitude, or as Paul here says, vain conceit, the selfish ambition, we can lean into these five ministries. And I want to just kind of walk through them. We have slides for these. The first one is um, the ministry of holding one's tongue. You combat evil thoughts by refusing to give them any kind of a voice. We combat selfishness by not speaking of others when they are not around. That you would never speak covertly about a brother or a sister in Christ, even under the cloak of... um, goodwill and trying to help. Oh, I'm trying to help this person. Let's talk about them and their problem. That we just, we just don't do that. You just hold your tongue and you don't give words to it. Do we have that one? Yeah. Ministry of holding one's tongue. Gossip has no place. It, it will cut against uh, this unity that God calls us to. The second is the ministry of meekness. This is about thinking little of yourself. Or as Romans chapter 12 says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought If you are a Christian, that means you have admitted that you have failed. If you are a Christian, you are admitting that you've reached the end of your own wisdom, that you've tried it yourself, and it's not working, and you need a Savior. You need to put your faith not in yourself and in someone else. And if I stand on the ground of failure, and you stand on the ground of failure, I can't see myself superior than you. You're admitting your own limitations and your own weakness. And if we're people who are out seeking to honor ourselves and promote ourselves, we are no longer seeking God's glory. We are no longer seeking to love our neighbors. Um, Whenever we start to think, you know, my sin isn't that bad, especially if I compare it to somebody else's sin that's really bad, then, then we forget how offensive our sin really is, that it put Jesus on the cross and he had to die for. So we need to practice this ministry of meekness. Third is the ministry of listening. 
One of the ways that we show love to God is by listening to him and listening to his word and by reading scripture. And one way that we show love to one another is by listening to one another. Bonhoeffer says that pastors are particularly prone to forget that listening can be better than speaking at times. Nobody yelled amen there, so that's... that's, He said pastors particularly, and he's right, feel compelled to you know, give input in the situations and contribute to the conversation and forget to stop and listen. This is very convicting for me to, to hear this and read this. Um, he also said that Christians are also very good at half-listening, which is a skill by which you sum up what somebody has said before they have said it, and you start to formulate how you will respond to them without actually seeking to be a listener and one who understands the other. And if we can practice this ministry of listening, it will help us to um, foster humility and mutuality and unity. Fourth, oh, before we go, I have hurt people close to me by not listening and by not practicing the ministry of listening. Fourthly, ministry of helpfulness. This is everyday, even menial tasks. When somebody needs help, you just lend a hand. Big things, small things. This is the practice of making your schedule and letting God interrupt your schedule. As people come to you at home, in your office, at your school, wherever you are, where people will interrupt you. That's God interrupting you, giving you an opportunity to practice helpfulness. And what it does is it keeps you from thinking that your schedule is just so important compared to everyone else's that they would come and interrupt you in your important work. And when we practice the ministry of helpfulness, that idea goes away. Fifth is the ministry of bearing. This is not just bearing one another's sorrow, but bearing with one another's sin. At the heart of Jesus' ministry, he bore our sin on the cross, on himself. And that, as Galatians 6.2 says, fulfills the law as we bear one another's burden. Uh, Ephesians 4 puts it like this. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. If we do not bear with one another, then we are not living a truly Christian life because, again, at the center of Christ's life was the bearing of our sins. So as we sin against one another and as we offend one another, we, are, we need to bear with that. So when somebody sins against you, okay, that hurts, but we don't have contempt for that person. It's actually... A joy because it gives you an opportunity to forgive. It may not feel like a joy or an opportunity. But instead of judging when you are offended, you now have an opportunity to extend grace. And then there is more grace. And it reminds us, too, that forgiveness might just be a daily thing. Oh, you again. I have to bear with your sin. I'm going to get to forgive you again today. This is hard, but it's the ministry of bearing. Sixthly, the ministry of proclaiming. This is speaking God's word. And and immediately Bonhoeffer qualifies it and said, hey, you saw the first ministry of holding your tongue, the ministry of listening. And if you've done those things, then there is a ministry of speaking God's truth to somebody that we are obligated out of love to to speak God's truth, especially if there's a, a sin that's involved, to honestly and gently speak God's truth into that situation. It's actually cruel not to speak, that we can't just remain silent. Uh, Lastly, number seven, uh, Bonhoeffer suggests the ministry of authority. 
based on Mark 10, 43. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. So if you have any authority in your place of work, in your family, in whatever authority you have, God has given you that authority to use to serve other people. That's how Jesus used his authority, his divine authority, to, to give his life and to serve. So genuine Christian authority in the ministry of authority is, is just serving others. If, if we can live this way of life together, it will foster the unity that the gospel demands. But here's the beautiful thing. It's not just when we're together. If we live this way of life, it will impact and shape the culture of wherever we are because we're bringing the same unity and humility into the places where we are. And quite honestly, I know that I'm not doing this really well right now, and I know there are people who are, so I just communicated with a bunch of people and asked them this week, how do you see unity and humility play out in the life of your work? in the life of your everyday. And people were great to get back to me and I um, asked them if I could share some of these things with you. There's one person who said, look, in my company, here's how humility works. I, I know that if we're successful, that's just God's blessing. And if we're not, then, then God's in control. And I just submit everything to God's sovereignty. So where does selfish ambition just goes away? If this isn't meant to be, it's, it's not going to be. If this isn't going to be successful, that's fine because God's going to make it succeed or not. And just being content with God's will. So then you just kind of die to the selfish part of that and you can just work hard and give people respect and treat them well. And he said, you know, talk about selfish ambition. When the success of the people who work for you is, and the success of your company is tied to incentives like financial incentives, it's easy to have selfish ambition, but you realize if they win, I win. If their needs are met, my needs are met. It's actually, if, if I can empower others to raise up and give of myself, then it's, it benefits everyone. <clears throat> Another person was describing a work environment where shared wisdom and shared knowledge was very important on the team. And when you're in that, you could focus on the wisdom that you bring to the table but he said what, what has worked well for his team is knowing that the wisdom around the table is not just something you're contributing to, but something that you will need at some point, that I'm actually going to benefit from the wisdom of this group. So it gives you a lot of humility, that wisdom isn't just a commodity that I have, it's, it's a commodity that I need. And humility becomes a big part of admitting that. And when you get bright minds and a lot of experience around the table, you know, humility makes it really easy. To have those interactions. If you get around that same table, a know-it-all, that makes those interactions very strained and very hard. It takes away the contribution of the team. Th that same person was contrasting a company he worked for where, where vain conceit... So opportunities for humility every day, there's tons of them. Opportunities for selfish ambition, virtually unlimited. And he's been in situations where the Selfish ambition ruled the culture and it eroded, it was just eroding his soul to the point where his wife said, what, what happened to you? What's happening to you? It was impacting all of his life. So the more that we can foster unity and humility, the more that we can change the culture for good. Um, I talked to another person who the key for this person was to help people to understand their contribution to what's going on in their company and to let them know 
regardless of how this project turns out, I care about you individually, that you're a human being, that we're not just wired to do what we're doing, but we have lives, and I want to know about your family. And, and she genuinely cares about these people, and that takes time and prayer to gain respect and trust, and, but it helps them collaborate better and achieve their work goals better as, as, they, see, as they see their value as individuals. <clears throat> and one more story. Talk to another person. His company provides 24-7 support to their clients. And considering, so how does humility play into this? He said, we're trying to offer 24-7 support, but that means somebody's got to be on call. They've got to have the phone that nobody wants to have. And in his whole company, there was only four people who were willing to take the on-call phone and give some time to do the 24-7. And it was really discouraging, and nobody wanted anything to do with it. So he, one employee at a time, into his office, said, look, we're a company that offers 24-7 support. How, and that problem's not going away. How would you solve that? What's a way that you would suggest that we handle how we do that? And individually, each employee gave some ideas. They had some insights. And he took all these suggestions and insights, and he tweaked the way that they would do this. They went from four employees who were willing to do the on-call thing to 26 just by listening to the input, making some changes, and now everybody's excited to be part of a company that offers that kind of thing. My, my point is, and I want to thank my friends for sharing their experiences with me. They know who they are. Because um, they're living these things out better than I am in some ways. And, and I'm grateful to, to know that the gospel is changing their hearts in all that they do. And that we're learning from one another. So the gospel requires, or it compels us towards unity. Unity is fostered through humility. And humility comes from the gospel. You see how that went full circle? The gospel requires unity, unity from humility, humility back from the gospel. Here it is. Look at verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, not something to be grasped and, and uh, to be exploited. But, verse 7, rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus took himself. Equality with God the Father. Not to, to use to his own advantage, but to take on the very lowest place. From the very highest position to the very lowest position. Human flesh, human servant, obedient to human death on a cross. But here's what God does. Verse 9. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus took his divine power and he went from the highest place to the lowest place and God honored that by taking Jesus from the lowest place to the very highest place that he is Lord of all and Lord of our lives. And if we live in light of Jesus, 
and as we are humble, that humility will unify us and it reflects Jesus who gave up everything to be obedient to death for us. And it gives glory to God the Father. So the challenge for us is this. This time tomorrow, wherever you are, there will be countless opportunities for selfish ambition, but there's going to be opportunities to consider others better than yourselves. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. To God's glory. Amen.